Hey everyone, I'm David Chalian, the CNN political director. This is The Daily DC. It's mid-February. We are on the other side of Iowa and New Hampshire in this 2020 race for the Democratic nomination. But clarity is still escaping us. The race is still one big question mark. The leaders in the delegate hunt right now, Senator Bernie Sanders, former Mayor Pete Buttigieg, are trading criticisms on the campaign trail. And then there's Mike Bloomberg, the billionaire looking to make a splash on Super Tuesday. He's now facing intense scrutiny related to remarks he made in 2015 defending his stop and frisk policy and remarks he made in 2008 regarding housing policies that impact African-Americans. I've got two guests to help me evaluate the 2020 state of play. CNN political analyst and Washington bureau chief of The Daily Beast, Jackie Kucinich, is here in studio with me in Washington, D.C. But first, I've got my colleague Ryan Nobles on the phone. Ryan is a CNN Washington correspondent, and he covers the Bernie Sanders campaign pretty closely for us. Ryan, thanks for calling in. No problem, David. Thanks for having me. So, Ryan, obviously, uh, Sanders finds himself... Um, in the driver's seat in many respects of this uh, nomination race right now, having uh, had a strong finish in Iowa, having won the New Hampshire primary. And yet there is this question mark that hangs around the Sanders campaign and around the candidate's head right now, which is can he grow and expand his coalition uh, because his success to date in the first two contests seems largely uh, due to a consolidation of the liberal wing of the party and of, obviously, his huge success with younger voters and the like. But it's all happening while the moderate side of the equation is is splitting up um, a chunk of vote. And uh, I guess what do you hear from Sanders' world is the plan to actually grow and expand the coalition beyond what it is right now? Yeah, I, I don't think there's any doubt, David, that that's the biggest kind of question mark for their campaign right now, in part because what they've told us from the very beginning is that the way that they were going to win was by expanding the base of available voters, right, that they were going to bring in this group of uh, first-time uh, primary and caucus goers, that they were going to uh, lean on heavily a group of young people that have never participated in the process before. They're also going to reach out to different minority groups, Latinos, African-Americans, Native Americans, who haven't participated in the process before. And there's evidence that they were able to bring a faction of that group in, but it wasn't overwhelming, at least not in the first two primary states. So the, the big question for Bernie Sanders is we know, you know, much like Donald Trump four years ago, is that he has maybe a 30% block of voters in the Democratic primary who are going to be with him through thick and thin, but can he bring in more voters than just that available group? So far, we haven't seen evidence of that, but what the Sanders campaign and what you know Sanders himself told me over a series of interviews uh, in New Hampshire before the primary is that winning begets winning, and that when uh, Democratic primary voters who may be a little bit reluctant uh, to support his candidacy because they may be uh, view him as too far to the left, see that he can win and that ultimately that he can beat Donald Trump, that they'll eventually get on board with his campaign. You know, it, it's going to take a while for to see whether or not that theory bears any fruit. Uh, but they they firmly believe that they're in the best position right now. They obviously have uh, won the most votes and they have the uh, you know, well, not the most money if you compare it to Michael Bloomberg, but they still have they certainly have uh, a, a lot of resources to lean on. So they they think they can still build this argument and they still believe that they can grow that coalition. But uh, right now, you know, the theory has not played out exactly the way that they promised it would. And, uh, you know, it seems to me one of his main rivals, Pete Buttigieg, at the moment, the clearest argument I hear from Pete Buttigieg and his operation 
uh, against Sanders is this notion of he depicts it as Sanders uh, paints a picture that uh, you either have to be for this revolution or you're for the status quo. And Buttigieg says that leaves a lot of people out who don't see themselves in that picture where those are the only two options. What is the what is the Sanders how does the Sanders campaign uh, frame the argument to dispute that notion that he's presenting its 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 status quo or revolution? Yeah, I mean, I, I think they welcome that argument in in, in particular uh, reason because they view that the way that you beat Donald Trump is through passion, energy, and enthusiasm. And there isn't a ton of energy and enthusiasm for a middle-of-the-road stance, right? Especially in this uh, era of American politics. The, the candidates that are winning are the ones who have, uh, you know, diehard passionate support and people that are interested in kind of wholesale major change. Donald Trump being the best evidence of that. But it's not just Donald Trump. You know, it's happening in a lot of these House races. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez might be an example of that. You even see it uh, trickling down to district attorney and Commonwealth attorneys races at the local level, that the energy is behind these candidates that are pushing kind of a bold agenda to take on the big problems that Americans find themselves in. Now, you know, whether or not that is the successful formula, I think, uh, stands to, to reason. And there's certainly an argument to be made. And I think that the Buttigieg argument is a smart one because there are a lot of regular participants in the Democratic primary that just kind of want to turn the page on the Donald Trump era. And they're looking for someone who can who kind of vocalize that frustration and just get back to a sense of normalcy. Uh, but the Sanders campaign is arguing that you've got to fight fire with fire, essentially, and that, you know, this is where, uh, you know, the, 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 the kind of real passion is within the Democratic primary. Uh, and then eventually in November, if you want to beat Donald Trump, you need those passionate supporters behind them. And if you offer up some sort of milquetoast option, uh, against Donald Trump, that could spell a doom. And obviously, there are two very distinct theories on that. Uh, but that, you know, the Sanders campaign is not going to change that view of things. They think that's their winning formula. Uh, and that's basically their response to the Pete Buttigieg kind of middle of the road response. Right. I guess they just have to eventually prove that that theory of the case gets them to 50 percent plus one. Um, and uh, obviously, that's not the case yet. Uh, let me uh, pose this to you. I think Sanders gave us a little clue last night on MSNBC. Talked to Anderson Cooper on our air. I think he talked to Chris Hayes on MSNBC. Um, and it came up this notion of uh, delegate accumulation and the convention. And it seemed that Sanders was saying uh, something a little different than he was saying four years ago, uh, which is that he said he he thinks, I think, that it, it is not really tenable or imaginable for somebody to walk into Milwaukee with a plurality of the delegates, but not a majority, a plurality of the pledge delegates, and that that person does not walk away with the nomination. Now, he had a whole different theory of the case four yeah. years ago when he was running against Hillary Clinton, who had uh, gotten to a plurality of the pledge delegates, and he was still making the case that superdelegates would come his way and and that he can upend uh, the total delegate calculation. Uh, it, it, am I reading him correctly that um, he is planning for, believes the likelihood perhaps is a delegate fight coming, uh, you know, at the very beginning of the Milwaukee convention? I think they're planning for every possible scenario, I think is the simplest way to answer that, David. And I, and I think that his campaign, you know, their best case scenario 
is that this winning begets winning, and it's a ball rolling down the hill, and eventually uh, he's going to win so much that it's not going to matter uh, what the situation is in Milwaukee. But they certainly understand that these at least first two results and then the polls going forward show a very fractured Democratic Party without one clear emerging favorite that uh, Democrats are unifying behind. And if that is the eventuality where you still have maybe four candidates, five maybe candidates that are continuing on and, you know, each one picking off different states here or there. And because, you know, you don't have winner take all states, that means that everybody is collecting delegates along the way, that there's certainly that possibility that you head to Milwaukee without a candidate, uh, you know, having the majority of the delegates. And they want to be in a position to say that they've got the most of those delegates, maybe not, uh, you know, more than 50 percent, but they've got the most. And I, I think the argument that they would make, too, to that, the difference between 2016 and now is that there was only two candidates that time around. And this time you've got a wide range of candidates. Uh, and if you get into a position where you're like that in Milwaukee, you're really having a different conversation. But it is interesting, David, and the point that you're alluding to is that when the shoe's on the other foot for Bernie Sanders and he finds himself maybe in the pole position but not necessarily uh, winning 50 plus one, that his, exactly. his, his tone changes a little bit. <laughs> yeah. I, I think that we'd be naive to just ignore that. I think yeah. that's an excellent point. Yeah. You, need, you need to press him on that when you next see him. Either you believe <laughs> yeah. of the rules that it's any which way to get to 50 percent plus one on any ballot, which is what he believed in 2016, or you believe, no, if you have the plurality, you really should just be handed the nomination. You can't believe both. So I look forward to you getting clarification from him on that. No, we should press them on it. But, you know, the other thing, too, is that they have changed the rules a little bit, too, right? I mean, the superdelegates don't have nearly the the influence that they had four years ago, which was one of his big complaints about the process in 2016. That doesn't change that fundamental fact. But, you know, if they were going to try and wiggle out of it, they might argue that the rules have changed. And so, therefore, the dynamics of everything have changed. If nobody comes in with a majority of pledged delegates, the superdelegates may have more power than they've ever had before. Wouldn't that so, be ironic? Yeah, it really would be. <laughs> would Ryan Noble, be thank you ironic. so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Talk to you soon. Thanks, David. All right. Now I'm turning to Jackie Kucinich, a CNN political analyst and Washington bureau chief of the Daily Beast. Jackie, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for being here. So you heard uh, Ryan just talking about Bernie Sanders there. We did not get to one thing which I am very eager to see, which is how Bernie Sanders is going to handle Michael Bloomberg. Um, we've seen how he's handled him rhetorically since Bloomberg got him, which is sort of railing against the billionaire, like, and you can't buy an election, which is like right into the Bernie Sanders message. Right. But that's different than handling Michael Bloomberg, the actual candidate entity that will be on a debate stage that ha- is spending 10 times what you're spending on the air right now. Um, what? How do you see that playing out, the Sanders-Bloomberg dynamic? It's so interesting because he's a perfect foil in a lot of ways, not only for Bernie Sanders, but also for Elizabeth Warren, who's actually been taking it to him a lot more by name, a lot more than Bernie Sanders has. Um, you know, first, we got Bloomberg has to get on that debate stage which and show up to that debate stage. He's one right, poll away right one now. One poll, right? So, yeah. uh, right. Um, but, you know, you would imagine that he was going he would be taking it to him on things like stop and frisk on. His record because it is a target rich environment, particularly for a person like Bernie Sanders. Uh, that said, um, Michael Bloomberg's also pretty shameless about all of this, right? Bernie Sanders is saying, you're trying to buy the election, and Bloomberg's basically like, indeed. Uh, I mean, <laughs> he hasn't said that, of course. Not quite that but, way, but he does but, say, no, but, I'm going to put my resources in trying to get rid of Donald Trump, yes. I think I think the, the New York Times headline today was a waterfall of money. I mean, it just, it, it is the scale of this thing 
is just mind-blowing and his wealth that he's putting into it is mind-blowing. And so Bernie Sanders will have enough money to stay in this thing as long as he wants to. Michael Bloomberg, uh, it, it, it remains to be seen once people see him on stage talking and he's not just this you know great and powerful Oz um, that we see on television, um, how he will be received and how much work some of these more liberal candidates will have to do. You mentioned the target-rich environment. I want you to hear Michael Bloomberg on the campaign trail in Tennessee yesterday getting questioned about his 2015 comments at the Aspen Institute where he defended uh, the stop-and-frisk policy. Uh, I want to get your thoughts on the other side. I don't think those words reflect what, uh, how I led the most diverse city in the nation. And uh, I apologized for the uh, practice and the pain that it caused. But why did uh, but you say it? It was uh, five years ago, and, um, you know, it's just not the way that I think, and it does not the way, it doesn't reflect what I do every day. I led the most populous, largest city in the United States and got reelected three times. The public seemed to like what I do. Right. Um, I mean, that was... <laughs> Long five years ago, uh, you know, and what he's <laughs> not try- quite a youthful indiscretion, right? Exactly. And what he's trying to say is, look at my actions, not my words. Well, this was an action that you implemented, so uh, that I don't know that that's going to be good enough. In addition, for someone like Bernie Sanders, Michael Bloomberg's uh, comments about the initially during the financial crisis in two thousand eight, not blaming the banks for something that was the bank's fault, instead blaming you know poor people essentially, uh, that is also going to be an attack line, and you know, frankly. For Elizabeth Warren, too, when I was in Iowa, one of the things you hear at Elizabeth Warren events is that um, her most diehard fans, it was the 2008 financial crisis, is why they started following her. And students, um, people who, you know, parents lost a lot after the financial crisis, They're, they are turned on by candidates like Warren and Bernie Sanders who want to take the power back from these entities. And Michael Bloomberg kind of represents them, not only as being Michael Bloomberg, but also being the mayor of New York City. Uh, So where those interests are extremely prevalent. Uh, So, you know, I'm sure his team is, you know, putting together all sorts of stuff on this. But um, having these progressive candidates with such a microphone, uh, his response is going to be critical um, to his candidacy. Well, one thing we've seen them put together is that after the uh, resurfacing of that 2015 audio uh, about defending stop and frisk with uh, some language that uh, many people felt were was racist or at least right. harmful, uh, they rolled out three Congressional Black Caucus endorsements uh, yesterday, uh, Lucy McBath and Greg Meeks and um, the representative from the USVI. Uh, they rolled out three of those. Then... Uh, today, you mentioned the story about his 2008 comments that the AP had about sort of I, it, it seemed to me like he was blaming Congress for changing the redlining redlining r- rules, rules so yeah. that more people that shouldn't be getting loans should. Because, I, I mean, it's it's like the exact opposite of what so many of these Democratic candidates have campaigned on. Joe Biden on The View today was like, I can't wait to debate him on on redlining. But the statement that they put out to try to spin it is, no, 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 no. He was saying that something bad happened after something good, that it was good that the redlining came to an end, but then the financial crisis happened because of that. Good luck. (laughs) (laughs) But like you say good luck, and yet the massive amount of spending, the overwhelming force that he has, I mean, I don't know how he's going to hold up to all this scrutiny, but 
he he is showing already, as you said, as the man behind the curtain, and we don't even seen him yet. But but in that role, he's digging into the African American yes. vote lead that Joe Biden had. I, th- he's making progress. He certainly is. But um, I again, I would be I would be curious. This is sight unseen. This is a lot of hype. And the most important thing, as you know, to the Democratic electorate is beating Donald Trump. And so if they think that he's going to be a weakened candidate because of some of the things he said, because of some of the things he'd done going up against the president, that's going to be his biggest Achilles heel. We just have to see uh, because the scrutiny is just starting. If there's one clip of him saying stuff like this, it's not like Michael Bloomberg was shy about interviews. Uh, I, I, I would guess that there are quite a few. Yeah, I would guess you're probably right. I wonder, and I don't know the answer to this because I haven't really uh, – this is not a question I've posed to voters when I'm out on the trail, though I will going forward. Right. To your point of the calculation of beating Donald Trump, does the bank account just answer that question for them in a positive way? That even with taking these hits that he's going to take on his record, is his commitment to just spending a fortune the thing that they see as, oh – Maybe just because of that, he is the one that could beat Donald Trump. That is definitely a part of this. And that could be a calculation. Uh, We'll just have to see where the electorate is once they know more about Michael Bloomberg. I mean, let's not forget, he hasn't even been on a ballot yet. Super Tuesday is is his Super Tuesday. uh. Um, (laughs) No, Super Tuesday is going to be the first time we really see him, you know, put some points on the board. It's just been, you know, he's like in your toaster, on your TV. He's everywhere right now. in your toaster. (laughs) Like Alexa's, like Michael Bloomberg's voice. Um, But uh, until we can, uh, he needs to prove that he can win with all of this money. Otherwise, it's just a lot of investment. I'm trying to assess, Jackie, how much skepticism I hear in your voice. Do you (laughs) think, like, I I hear some. Right. And and I share your skepticism, but... um, do you are you so skeptical that you think this is not a real thing or you think there is the potential for this to become a real thing? Listen, I was really surprised to see him cutting into Joe Biden's um, African-American vote already. Um, and and, and that, that that says to me that people are taking a look at him now. They haven't kicked the tires yet. And totally. Fair. And that's and that's what I'm waiting to see when voters actually start. I mean, a lot of these states, it is important. It's not like Iowa and New Hampshire. You have to have dinner with them. Right. But they do care. Um, how about, you know, what he has to say about health care. That's going to be a really important assessment for a lot of voters because that's the first thing you always hear from people that they care about the most. So I think what he says and how he says it and who he says it to is it, it, it's too soon for me to tell. OK, will you come back, though, when I we get definitely uh, will. <laughs> more data and see how he performs either at a debate or after he puts some points on the boards? I want to hear your thoughts. Absolutely. Jackie Kucinich, thank you so much for being here. Greatly appreciate it. Thank you. Friendly reminder to our listeners, we've got a new episode of The Daily DC every weeknight. So please subscribe on your favorite podcast app. While you're there, consider leaving a rating or a comment. It helps people find the show. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you tomorrow. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.